0: Navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer, with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. Welcome to this episode of The Mentor, ESQ. Uh, This is a special episode because it was recorded live uh, in coordination with the New York State Academy of Trial Lawyers. Uh, So when this was recorded, there was about 800 plus lawyers tuning into a webinar uh, that uh, were listening to this. And I'm glad that you can join me for this episode. And I hope you enjoy uh, learning about working with experts and how to use experts to build your case and you can get a CLE credit for this and uh, I will have a code uh, that I will read uh, throughout the program once uh, somewhere in the middle and once towards the end and then there's a link uh, in the material uh, bio Uh, rather there's a link there that you can click on for the materials that go with this program and also fill out the form uh, that will Give you the CLE credit you just have to put in the code and your information. So once again welcome to this episode and uh, here we go let's talk about building your case while working with experts. I'm so happy you're choosing to join us today on this Thursday afternoon to talk about building your case while working with experts. Uh, you may be wondering what the deal is with this studio uh, backdrop that I have here as Michelle said. Uh, I have a podcast and actually we're doing not only this live webinar for the New York State Academy of Trial Lawyers, but this is also a live podcast at the moment uh, that will be available afterwards uh, through audio and video presentation. So I'll be referring to things for uh, people who may be listening just by audio, as well as for you who are watching this uh, live now. If you haven't checked out the podcast, we're in season two already, uh, and episode two, Run with the Cowboys, featured our very own uh, Michelle Stern. But Uh, It's worth checking out. We've had a lot of interesting guests. Uh, Harvey Weinstein's defense attorney was my guest uh, live the other week. Talk about trial skills, have some uh, real interesting topics. So here's the info uh, on my screen. You can feel free to check it out. Um, I know there are a lot of different backgrounds registered and showing up here for uh, this uh, webinar right now. Uh, We had about over a thousand lawyers register, which is very exciting. And I think we're at over 700 or so are on the on the webinar right now. I've had a chance to look at the registration list, and I'm pleased to see that there are uh, attorneys of all different uh, specialty areas. We have plaintiffs' lawyers, defense lawyers, we have insurance claims representatives, uh, court personnel, judges, and what I'm going to try and do, and in different levels of experience, from novice lawyers uh, to some of my colleagues and adversaries that I know are, are quite experienced and could be giving this lecture. So I'm gonna try and cover a lot of things uh, throughout this um, webinar and the CLE. And as you know, I watch a lot of CLEs as well. And my belief is that if you take one good thing out of this, hopefully more, but at least one good thing, makes you think about a way to make your case even better by using an expert, hey, okay, then it's worth the hour that you tuned in. So let's get to it. I'm gonna be talking about some materials uh, there's a link uh, within this webinar. I believe Michelle put it in the chat box. Uh, if you don't have the materials, um, you can just uh, put in a request through the chat or Q&A. We'll get those to you. If you're listening to the podcast, uh, within the description of the podcast, there's a link to download the materials. It's uh, you know 100 and, and some odd pages in a PDF. And I'm not gonna go through that with screen shares with you now. I'm gonna talk with you now. But I will reference the PDF number when I'm uh, talking about a specific uh, item that's in the materials. So at your leisure, either now or later on, you can look at that PDF of materials, look at the number. And I'm pretty happy with the materials uh, that I submitted for this. It's really to give all of you a um, sample of different types of expert exchanges, um, of what life care plans look like, economic reports look like, so you can uh, see those and use those uh, for your own benefit. So let's get to it. One of the things that I love about personal injury law is working with experts. Um, It's really, you know, as lawyers, we're always learning. And uh, that's what I enjoy about this area of practices, new topics, new subject matters all the time. And when you work with an expert, you're really having a private tutor in the specific area that you're focusing on in your case. And it's a way to learn, uh, to improve your knowledge, to make you a better lawyer, uh, to improve your case, uh, and also to better serve and educate your clients. There's lots of benefits of working with experts. You can learn the strengths and weaknesses of your case. You can learn about the pitfalls in your case of what to look out for uh, as you get underway. Um, There are liability experts and damages experts. We'll talk about both categories today. And the liability experts are so important because they help you build your case so you can win the liability part. The damages experts help you with the damages of your case. So if you're a plaintiff's attorney, you wanna build those damages up to get the highest numbers possible in recovery. If you're defending the case, you wanna use your damages experts to uh, poke holes in the plaintiff's damages case and effectively bring down the numbers. Experts can be used to help present your case uh, visually by way of um, exhibits, enlargements, graphics, computer animation that can help you in trials, that can help you in arbitrations or mediations or in settlement negotiations. And it's really nice to have a private tutor on your side throughout the case. When things pop up, you can run things by your expert. You can have your expert play devil's advocate. Um, In my firm, we always ask our experts, if you're defending this case, how would you be looking at this? Um, So it gives you another way to look into it. Now, when do you need an expert? There's legal requirements and practical requirements of when you need an expert. Um, And whether or not testimony of an expert is admissible at trial, um, there's different standards, legal standards uh, in different states uh, that set forth Uh, the the, uh, appropriateness of an expert and whether or not an expert can testify. And it usually is when there's a requirement or there's a subject matter that involves professional or scientific knowledge or skill that's not within the range of ordinary training or intelligence. So in a simple auto accident case, uh, a lay person as a juror can determine whether or not a driver may have been negligent but in a products liability case or a medical malpractice case, there's gonna be an extra layer of knowledge and skill that you're gonna to need to educate the jury with and that's where the experts come in. So as a practical reason, you're gonna want experts to help you with your case for the reasons I discussed, but as a legal reason, sometimes you must have an expert uh, in order to pursue a case. For example, in New York, if you are a plaintiff's attorney, and wanted to bring a medical malpractice case. Uh, the lawyer needs to sign a certificate of merit at the time of filing of the case, uh, representing that you have consulted with a medical expert who's reviewed the case and believes that there is a merit to the claim. Uh, you have an obligation as an officer of the court to have your case reviewed by a medical expert before filing it. So legally, you're required to do that. Um, And that's a requirement under CPLR uh, 3012A. That's the Certificate of Marriage requirement. But it also makes good practical sense. And you will find that most practitioners at the top of their field um, will always get their experts on board early because the experts can help you frame your case um, from the outset. Uh, I often will get experts on board before filing a summons and complaint to make sure that we have our theories right, uh, especially in the more complex cases. Um, So, and to help you sort of frame your issues and it's a chess game, right? Litigation, you're always looking ahead. So you don't wanna be caught off guard once you're underway with the case. And by getting your experts on board early in the case, we'll let you know how strong your case is or potentially how weak it is. And it'll make you a better attorney. You can give that information to your clients who will be uh, very appreciative of it. Now, if you're not required to get an expert, for example, for a certificate of merit, um, practically, when's a good time? If you're not going to do it before filing a summons and complaint, I recommend that you have your expert on board before depositions, because depending on the type of case you're handling, it's a construction accident, it's a product liability case, um, whatever it may be, medical malpractice case, that expert can not only help you identify information that you want to request in discovery that you may not know about. For example, if you've never handled a construction accident case and a big one comes your way and you want to make sure in discovery, let's say you're the plaintiff, what do I request? It's an accident. Um, Your construction accident expert may tell you about requesting toolbox talk uh, material or daily report logs. These may be uh, terms that you are very familiar with or you've never heard of before. So whatever the case it is, the expert can help identify, and we will often ask our expert for a list of information they would like. So we request that for uh, our review before a deposition. And then we work with our experts to prepare for the depositions, the liability experts that is for sure. And uh, to make sure that we know all the questions that we wanna ask, that we ask the questions that the expert wants to know the answer to. In a medical malpractice case, if I'm about to, Um, question a surgeon in a surgical malpractice case, I'm gonna wanna have my surgical expert on board early, review the medicals, have my surgical expert say to me, oh, I wanna know why um, the surgeon chose to do this technique or why they started the anesthesia later in the case, not earlier. Um, So you wanna be prepared before deposition in cases, so it's good to have the expert on board before then. before summary judgment motions. If it's a case you anticipate having a summary judgment motion on, whether it be a uh, soft tissue threshold case, you wanna know if your doctors are going to support your claims uh, under the threshold issues um, to support you in fighting off a motion made by the defense, or if you're a defense attorney and you anticipate making that motion to dismiss the plaintiff's case, you wanna have your physician lined up, ready to go uh, in advance. If it's a defect case, um, you're gonna wanna have your engineer ready. Uh, if it's a medical malpractice case, again, you're gonna wanna have your medical experts ready to either support your motion for summary judgment or be prepared to defend a motion if it's made against your party. Experts are important to have for pretrial settlements. Um, you know, when you get your experts on board early, not only does it benefit you in preparing your case and building your case, But if you can obtain the reports, if you can obtain the information and analysis from your expert and you're in a position to exchange that um, with your adversary, um, it tells your adversary a couple things. First of all, your adversary will say, wow, um, this attorney or this firm um, is prepared. Uh, This attorney, this firm is showing what they're gonna come to trial with. This is what we're gonna have to fight against. These are who the experts are. Uh, and it helps foster settlement often, and you don't need to go to trial. But if you do have to go to trial, you have your playbook ready. Uh, I effectively used this technique in a very serious um, case that I had where our client was badly injured with burns and a brain injury in an apartment fire, and I had all of the experts on board early as far as um, the uh, plastic reconstruction uh, expert, the plastic surgical expert, a neurologist, um, a radiologist, a life care plan, an economist and I put all of it together and exchanged all that very early on and ultimately the case did settle before it got close to trial because they saw that um, you know what we had and we were prepared to proceed. So it's good to get it when you're ready to start thinking about settlement. Also we're going to talk about how your damages experts um, when they're completing their review and you get their reports it helps you determine the value of your case and help you build an appropriate demand and determine what the right settlement range is. So, you want to have your economic um, experts and your damages experts on board uh, really before you start talking about serious settlement in case. Um, for those of you who uh, attended the CLE I did with Hadley Matarazzo several months ago, on litigating personal injury cases in federal court, you will know that in federal court there is a case management order uh, that will tell you when you must um, disclose your experts. In federal court, you have to give reports of your experts, unlike state court. You have to uh, make your experts available for depositions, unlike in state court, and there are time frames for all of that. So if you do have a case in federal court, Take a good look at your case management order regarding experts and get on it. Make sure you have your experts early and ready because you don't wanna run afoul of those deadlines and it does take time to have an expert evaluate your case. Also talking about getting an expert on board early. A lot of times you want to have an inspection done of the scene of an accident. Uh, If it's your accident reconstructionist, you wanna get out to the scene before it changes. If it's your engineer looking at defects, they wanna be out to photograph and measure before it changes. So you wanna get experts really involved as early as possible. I can't stress enough the importance of that. So now let's talk about experts uh, and different types of experts. So actually, before we get into uh, specific experts, I was remiss I did want to talk about timing of disclosure of experts uh, in state court. I just talked about in federal court, you have a case management order. Uh, In state court, the rules are a little bit more relaxed and you are bound in New York state Uh, Each state has their own uh, discovery and disclosure rules and laws. In New York State, uh, many of us are familiar with CPLR 3101, subdivision D, subdivision one, commonly referred to as a 3101 disclosure. Um, Most people think that it means you have to get your expert disclosure in 30 days before trial. The statute actually doesn't say that. There's a ton of litigation about how early you need to get your disclosure in. I've been involved in many cases at trial where the expert is disclosed the day the expert's getting called to the stand. And we've actually gone up on appeal and had appellate court say, ah, it's okay. So, um, You don't want to take a chance though of your expert being precluded uh, as a result of a late disclosure. So familiarize yourself with 3101 D1 of your New York or whatever state you're in with your local uh, rules and statutes and make sure that you timely disclose your experts um, earlier, the better. Um, Sometimes it's a waiting game. Uh, There's a little strategy going back and forth, but it is important once you have them, you should disclose them. Now, we'll talk about what's required in the disclosures as we uh, go into it, but I do have two sample disclosures in the materials. Um, One is at page two of the PDF. The numbers I'm referring to are the PDF numbers, uh, because it's a bunch of different documents. So on PDF page two, you'll see a 3101 exchange uh, for, um, for an auto accident reconstructionist. Uh, in the Oscar Amador case, which I will talk about. That went to verdict, so I can talk about the uh, the parties in that. Um, you'll also see at page 17, a medical liability expert exchange under 3101 uh, in another case um, where I've redacted names. I've done a decent amount of redactions uh, so that I could try and give you as much information in the materials as possible. So we'll go through the different requirements as to when you need to disclose what you need to disclose in 3101s. Uh, as we talk about the specific experts. So let's get to the experts. I'm gonna talk about different experts, how you handle it, the benefits of them, how to, how to deal with it, okay? So the first is medical, medical experts. We will often, in our practice area, deal with medical experts. Um, whether you're a plaintiff's lawyer, a defense lawyer, if you're an insurance, a claims representative reviewing the files, And there's really two types of medical experts. You're going to have a liability expert um, who, in a medical malpractice case, will be working with you and your firm to either say that there was a departure from the standard of care or there was not a departure from the standard of care, Um, whether there was a failure to timely diagnose, whether the surgery was done negligently, uh, whether there was a delay in Failing to timely refer uh, the patient to a specialist, um, there are various areas where there could be medical malpractice, medical negligence, and you need, as we spoke of briefly earlier, at least if you're plaintiff, to get those experts on board early. Okay, I'm going to give you the code for this podcast that you'll need to enter to get a CLE credit on the form that you will find uh, in the link uh, for this podcast in the description, and that code is EXP one, two, three, e-x-p, one, two, three. Now, when you are disclosing those experts um, and they are a liability expert, um, there's a little sort of cat and mouse kind of funny thing that we do, those of us who are practitioners in this field, where you're not required to really identify by name uh, who your expert is. Uh, That's a special uh, cutout in the uh, medical malpractice practice area. Uh, And the idea is you don't want to put external pressure. If it's a medical expert, certainly for the plaintiff who is going against uh, his or her community by testifying against another medical professional, and there's maybe a fear that somebody would come down on them for testifying in advance, you don't need to give the liability expert's name. Uh, But you are required to give their education, their background, uh, and other uh, information to show that they are qualified as an expert. You're required to identify the materials they reviewed to form their opinions, what those opinions are, uh, what they're based upon, what they're expected to testify to at the time of trial. So you have to give a lot of information, but you don't have to give the name. Um, There are ways to kind of figure out who uh, the experts are uh, anyway, but uh, by using the schooling and where their training is and uh, their practice area, but uh, under the current rules in New York, you don't have to disclose the name. That is different if it is a physician who is, let's say, uh, an examining physician uh, who is examining on behalf of the plaintiff or the defendant, um, a claimant or a plaintiff who is injured, and they're doing an examination, and they're specifically coming to court as an expert to testify as to their findings of their examination. If that's the case, uh, you are required to identify that expert's uh, name, give their curriculum vitae, uh, and also give the reports and their findings of their evaluation uh, if they are going to use those findings at the time of trial to testify. Now, if it's a treating uh, physician, a uh, treating medical expert, who you're going to call at the time of trial, for example, you represent someone who is injured, they fractured their leg, uh, their surgeon, who uh, orthopedic surgeon who repaired uh, their leg, um, is coming to court to testify at the time of trial, you are not required to give a 3101 D1 ex, um, exchange or disclosure for treating physicians. You just have to make sure that you have exchanged uh, all of the records, given authorizations, given notice that that treating physician is anticipated to appear at the time of trial to text, testify in accordance with his or her treatment and recommendations and opinions and causation. Okay, but you don't need a 3101 for a treating physician. So medical experts are a little unique in whether or not you disclose certain information. Um, there are all kinds of medical experts depending on the case you have, and um, it's really I enjoy working with experts. I've worked with. Pretty much most practice areas, from obstetrics to gastroenterologist to infectious disease, emergency room doctors, and um, I enjoy it. I learn so much. I learn a lot about medicine. Uh, it makes me a little nervous whenever a friend or family member is undergoing a treatment or is concerned about an illness, um, because I, I probably know more than I should have should about these things. Um, but it's just it's a great way to educate yourself, learn about things, and, and make you a better lawyer. There's so many other types of experts that you use in liability. Uh, Many of us see professional engineers in trip and fall cases, in defect cases, premises liability cases. These are experts who will uh, evaluate cracks in sidewalks or whether a step was uneven or whether the ramp uh, is a code violation. Um, You want to have these engineers in early to evaluate the cases. You're gonna have engineers, different types of engineers have specialties in different types of products and equipment. Uh, If you're dealing with a product liability case and um, it's a defective chainsaw or a defective uh, lawnmower, you're gonna wanna find an engineer with a specialty in that area. Um, So engineers are often used Um, In state court, when you do a 3101 exchange for a professional engineer, uh, you do need to identify that person by name, give their curriculum vitae, all of their qualifications. You don't have to exchange a report like you do in federal court, um, but you need to take maybe the summary, the opinions of that expert and put that in your 3101 exchange. You'll see how I do that in in the PDF attachment uh, at page two for an accident reconstruction expert. There is construction industry experts. Uh, many of us uh, that practice in serious construction accident cases often debate, and the law often debates, whether or not you are required to have an expert in a labor law accident case in a scaffold claim 240 subdivision one or a 241 subdivision six claim. But there are some great experts. They're knowledgeable about uh, site safety, about OSHA requirements, about industrial code rules. So it's really important to get construction accident experts on board to help you with your case, uh, whether you're a plaintiff or a defendant. And um, again, there are specialties within the construction industry. Uh, I've handled many cases where there have been accidents involving lifts uh, that are at a job site, scissor lifts, hydraulic lifts, uh, chair lifts, and There are experts that specialize in those products that talk about when the uh, emergency shutdown is supposed to kick in, about how far they can tilt before the scissor lifts can't go up any higher. So these are great experts to work with uh, on your construction accident cases. And again, if you're a novice attorney, um, you don't have to be afraid of taking on a case Um, that you haven't handled before. If you get the right expert, um, you will learn, you'll get educated and you will uh, feel comfortable and that that will help you. So experts um, can give you that confidence that you're doing a good job for your client and for your firm. There's lots of transportation experts that can help you with your liability cases. Uh, subway accident cases. Uh, I've handled several of those and there are train operating engineers. They're the ones that drive the subway trains at the front. The conductors whose job it is to look out the window, open and close the doors. I've worked with those to help me in cases where people have been struck or injured uh, by way of a subway accident. Um, Buses, tractor trailers. Um, We had a case where a bus, a big coach bus hung a, curve a little bit too tight around a corner and uh, took out a young physician who's riding his bicycle to work and badly injured him. So we retained a bus operating expert, someone who had extensive expertise in driving buses um, so that they can talk about how often you're supposed to check the side view mirrors, especially when making turns and checking the back tires. So if you're handling an automobile accident case, You wanna think about using experts to make your case stronger. Uh, Many practitioners don't even think about it. They say, oh, it's an auto case. Uh, You don't need scientific evidence. You don't need uh, the bus struck somebody. uh, You don't need to bring in or spend the money on an expert. Um, I encourage you that if the damages are significant enough and the exposure is there, if you're defending the case uh, or if you uh, are plaintiff in the case and there is a significant injury and a lot of coverage, um, get that expert on board. You want to make your case as strong as possible. And I want to give you a a brief little um, experience I had this year and the last year uh, that really brings that, that to light. Um, We had an automobile accident case, um, and this is the one in your materials that starts at page two. My client, Oscar Amador, was riding his motorcycle uh, out in Long Island and approaching uh, an entrance to the Grand Central Parkway. He's on his motorcycle. He's making a left-hand turn, and approaching him is a a woman driving an Audi sedan, and she's making a right-hand turn. They're both coming to turn onto the service road to get on. Sure enough, what happens, they collide. And um, Oscar was uh, knocked down, badly injured, a fractured leg. Uh, He had surgery with a rod in his leg, had lots of unfortunate complications. And the police report uh, was of the type that most of us see in our practice. And it basically said the motorcycle operator states, he was turning and going straight ahead and struck in the rear by the Audi sedan. Um, of course, the Audi sedan driver says uh, she made the right hand turn and the motorcycle came up upon her left, cut her off and fell off his motorcycle and was injured. Um, that was the fact pattern. That was basically how they both testified at their depositions. And um, by the time we got the case, it was the, well after the accident and the um, We're sitting in a case meeting at my firm where we review the cases, and we saw this case um, was on the calendar in Queens. And we said, all right, it's probably, we'd all look at this and say 50-50, all right? Determine what the injury is. Let's say for argument's sake, it's a million dollar injury. Probably look at it, maybe it's a $500,000 settlement. Uh, In a good scenario, 50-50, they're pointing fingers. That's what a jury's gonna probably come up with. But we said, how can we do better? Is there anything we can do that doesn't make this a he said, she said, there weren't any witnesses. So we decided, let's give it a shot. Let's retain an accident reconstructionist expert, um, get the expert, all the photos. We had some photos taken at the scene um, from the parties that were there. Um, the police report, the deposition transcripts. We knew the the make and model of the motorcycle and the car involved. And we said, let's see if, uh, an, accident reconstruction expert in looking at everything can say, yeah, our client's version makes more sense, or no, our client's doesn't make sense. It's the defendant's uh, version that makes more sense under the circumstances here. Let's at least see what we have. um, So uh, if it works out better for us, and we can actually use science to support our plaintiff's position, our client's position, um, then maybe we'll do better. And that's what we did. Um, So we hired a a gentleman named Michael DeSico. His information, his CV, you will see it's attached to the 3101, the PDF page two, um, with all the attachments to it at your time, take a look through it. And basically what he did is, and he absorbed everything, he went to the scene, he threw drones up into the air, I don't know if throw, he didn't throw them, but he uh, has an FCC license, he put a drone over, he mapped out the whole area, he used scene photographs to match it up, um, got stats on the vehicles, did inspections and measurements. And he was able to come up with a diagram that's in the materials. Um, the diagram is at page 21, is a PDF of it. And he placed the vehicles where they must have been as they approached the intersection and how the scene evidence brings to life how this accident occurred. And his reconstruction supported our client's version, that he was already there and the other vehicle, the defendants came behind and struck our client. So we reached out to the defense. We exchanged the report. We said, look, we have an accident reconstruction expert. We think it's more than 50-50, but what do you want to do? they didn't want to settle the case. Not an offer was made on the case. So what we did do is we agreed to fix the damages at a certain number and then try liability. And uh, whatever the jury determined as far as percentage of fault, we would get. If it was a 50-50 split, we'd get 50% of the, of the number we agreed upon. Uh, if we lost the case, we'd get zero. If we got 100%, we'd get the whole amount. So sure enough, we exchange our 3101. The defense firm comes into court at the time to pick, asks for an adjournment so they can get an expert. Uh, They were a little late to the game there. They should have gotten it earlier. Um, They got an expert um, who basically didn't really do a thorough job, um, not even close to what our expert had done, probably did a rush job because unfortunately, the expert had to at the last minute before trial. And uh, the trial went on, this was actually, the verdict came in on March 6th, I think, of this year. I think it was one of the last trials before the pandemic. And um, because we are prepared, because we had a good expert um, in the way we presented the case, we actually got 100% liability against the defendant, and we got 100% of the fixed amount of damages. So that was a case where we we're really pleased we made that decision. The expert made all the difference, all the difference and we had time to prepare, enlarge our exhibits, we exchanged everything in advance so nothing would be precluded. You'll see that in the exchange, the photographs, the exhibits, the opinions, and, um, and it won and it, and it brought in a substantial recovery for a client uh, that would not have been the case but for that expert. So obviously you have to pick and choose when to use experts, it's not inexpensive, but if you're a plaintiff's lawyer, Look, this is what we do. We work on a contingency fee. So we invest in our cases. And you just have to get the money, save the money, earmark it, invest in your case uh, so that you get the better return. And that's the way that um, you get the cases settled. And and that's one of the huge benefits important of working with an expert. All right, so I'm gonna try and cruise through this a little bit faster. It's This is just a great topic and I've gotten a lot of questions. I just checked through the Q&A. I will handle those at the end uh, and I promise I I'll get through every one of them. So um, except right now, I just wanna to touch on one because you had to ask about Marissa Tomei's uh, role as an expert witness and my cousin Vinnie, of my favorite, I hate law movies. I love my cousin Vinny. And it's actually a pretty accurate movie as far as what is allowed and what isn't allowed and trial skills and all that. So it's just great. And the question was, would Marisa Tomei's character um, in real life be allowed if that was the scenario to testify as an automotive expert? And the answer is probably. Um, you don't have to have educational experience. If you can imp- impress upon uh, the judge and in voir dire, if need be, before a jury, um, that you have the experience and knowledge and requisite uh, training and skills to opine on something, you can most definitely be considered as an expert. Um, the lack of formal education and maybe publications, that goes to the weight of the expert's testimony. Uh, but generally, um, if you have that, you can get it. So thanks for the Cousin Vinny question. I'll take the others towards the end because I want to make sure I get through everything. So. And I know there were a lot of issues about exchanging uh, 3101s and I promise to address all those at the end. Um, Now there's other experts that a lot of people don't have as much um, experience with and those are human factors experts um, and biomechanical experts. Uh, I see those a lot in my product liability cases. I'll give you an example. We had a case where a woman was using an exercise band uh, where she would put it between her her step on it with her foot and do bicep curls. And this particular band came with a door attachment. It was a a hard ball um, that was in the middle of the band and uh, it came on the band when you opened it from the box and you could put it through the crack in the door, shut the door, the ball would stay on the other side so you can do pulling exercises and all of that. So she stepped on the ball to do the bicep curl as the uh, manual showed her and she does a pull-up curl, the ball comes out from under her foot and slingshots and uh, hits her in her right eye and blinds her. Unfortunately for our client, she was already blind in the left eye uh, from a congenital defect, so she was rendered permanently blind. And in that case, uh, the defense, knowing it was a big exposure case, did the right thing. They brought in experts and they brought in um, a biomechanical engineer to testify that and do all these tests on the band. Basically, the defense was that even if it's our argument was that the ball was a dangerous thing that didn't need to be there um, and uh, was unnecessary. And that was defective. And they knew about this causing injuries. They should have removed the ball. So the biomechanical engineer for the defendant did testing uh, and his conclusion was that even if the band itself uh, slingshotted and struck her in the eye, it would have caused the same injury, the forces upon the body. And so we retained a biomechanical engineer to prepare us and for me to call foul on their engineer and really take him down uh, in depositions, it was in federal court, so we had depositions and poke the holes in that. Um, But that's when you bring biomechanical engineers in, when there's an issue as to whether the forces involved um, could cause the injury uh, sustained. You see that in auto accident cases, sometimes uh, plaintiffs who claim they were injured in a rear end accident that wasn't severe. The uh, defense will bring in biomechanical engineers uh, to, testifies experts that the impact and the way the impact occurred and the location of the impact and the position of the plaintiff's body was not sufficient enough to cause the type of injuries as documented in the medical records. So biomechanical engineers have the training to look at medical records, look at forces, look at the circumstances of any type of event and form conclusions as to whether it could or couldn't. Uh, cause the injury. They can be used as a sword. They can be used as a shield, uh, but you need to work with them whenever there's any kind of concern that the impact may or may not have caused the injury or it would have been person would have been injured the same anyway. Um, That's when you bring in biomechanical engineers. Now, human factors experts, a lot of people don't use. And what I like to use them for is a situation where the client may have done something that you think is kind of dumb. (laughs) <laughs> and a human and cause their injury. For example, uh, we had a case once where a, a porter in a, in a building, a maintenance guy, um, stuck his hand into a, um, a trash compactor in the basement to try and get something out that was stuck. And what happened, of course, uh, it got his hand and he was severely injured. And a lot of people would say, how are you gonna win that case? The jury's gonna say, what was he thinking putting his hand in a trash compactor? The defense is pretty easy. He put his hand in a trash compactor. How do you get by that? Uh, In our um, product liability case with the resistance ban, there was instruction manuals, it was warnings. Come on, she should have known to make sure to take that ball off before doing that. Um, Does she, you know, she should have read all the instructions. She would have known that. So the way that a person does or doesn't handle a situation or may not handle it in hindsight, the way that you think they should have, those are human factors experts. And there's studies out there that talk about why people do things that you wouldn't normally expect them to do and they explain it. And that can be really helpful in tough cases where you may have a a plaintiff uh, who does something strangely. Um, So again, you can use those as a sword or as a shield, but those are human factors experts. which are experts that you don't often come across. All right, now I wanna shift gears in the quick time I have remaining from liability experts to damages experts. Damages experts are what help you build the value of your case as a plaintiff and as a defendant, your damages experts are going to minimize the value, try and bring those numbers down or poke holes in the experts brought forth by the plaintiff. Again, if you have a case with exposure, Uh, as a plaintiff or defendant, a big case, big injury, big money at stake, you must, must, must get these experts on board. Uh, I oftentimes will have all of my economic experts lined up and the defense doesn't. And they figure they're just going to get up there and cross-examine my economist and my life care planner, my vocational expert. And I'll tell you what, it doesn't work well. It just doesn't. Um, Because it's really easy for me to get up there and uh, in summation and say, where were their experts? Where were their experts? And um, usually as good as a, as a lawyer, trial lawyer is, um, they usually can't go toe-to-toe with experts. Um, they do their best to poke holes, but um, you need to have your own experts. Both sides do on big cases. And when you're thinking about a demand for a case, you always want to, in a settlement number, you always want to start with what I like to call hard numbers. If someone gets injured and they weren't working and there's no loss of income and no future care and it's just a pain and suffering case then you do your research on the value of that injury um, and you're stuck basically and and you come up with your value based on similar values that you do your homework on but if you have a plaintiff who is injured in the course of work who now can no longer work has a loss of income who's going to need future medical care um, these are future economic damages that the numbers become very large. You need to get those assessed and documented so that you can come up with the hard numbers, what those figures are. So if your economic damages and all your reports come in and say, this person, uh, as a result of this accident, has future economic income loss and health care loss of $2.635 million, that gives you a starting point. And then as a plaintiff, I say to the jury, That's just to cover the bills. Now let's talk about the effect on this person's life, which is much more. And that's how your numbers can get higher and you may consider a $5 million demand based on that. Um, It gives you a frame of reference. And I always tell my clients when they say, what's my case worth? I say, take a deep breath, we're gonna find out. We need to get our analysis done and I'll share that with you. So quickly, in the short time I have, um, and I'll answer questions. There's really, when someone's injured, uh, and there's an economic loss. It usually happens by the inability to go back to work or not do the same job and earn less, and future care costs for medical treatment, future surgeries, and the horrific cases of people who are paralyzed or catastrophically injured, all the care they're gonna need. So what do you need? You're gonna need to start off with two things, a vocational expert, and that's the person that's gonna evaluate the plaintiff and say whether or not he or she can or cannot go back to work, Or can only go back to work in a role that gives them less money, and then you're going to need a life care planning expert. It's usually the same specialty uh, that does life care planners and vocational, and they will assess um, the uh, future costs involved with the care that this person is going to need for the rest of their life. How many times they're going to have to go for follow-ups with the orthopedist? How many more surgeries? What the cost of those surgeries are? What the medications are going to cost every year? And then. You take your life care plan, you take your vocational plan, if you have both or if you just have one, and then you give that to your economist. Your economist will take the figures, put it into an economic report, and generate a report which will bring you to your hard numbers, and that's where you start off with your case. Now, if you're defending, if you're a plaintiff, you do that, you exchange that. The defendant, if you're a defense lawyer or a claims representative, you're going to want to have that looked at by your experts and say, are these legit or are they really padding this? Are they really overreaching? Where can we poke holes in it? That would bring these numbers down. That's what you have to do in these cases. I've given you samples in the materials. Um, So you will see on page 28, a sample life care plan. A lot of people have never seen a life care plan before. This was a very extensive life care plan that we did um, for A person who uh, suffered a horrific injury in a construction accident case, who will need a lot of future care. So we redacted all the names, but it shows you what goes into a life care plan that starts at page 28. Um, And then we did a um, vocational, uh, I put in the materials of that same individual who can no longer work in the field of construction law. And that's at page 88. So you'll see what those kinds of reports look like. And then um, the economic reports that use that information to generate the final numbers, the hard numbers, uh, samples of that, there's a sample at page 28 of an economic analysis that was done based on the life care plan and the materials, and also an economic analysis done on the income loss. Now, those numbers can get big, especially if the plaintiff is a union representative, because not only is it the loss of income that the economist projects ahead, but also the loss of benefits, of health benefits, of annuity contributions, pension contributions, um, healthcare costs, social security costs. All right, now it's time to give you the second code and it's the same as the first code. So make sure you enter EXP123, exp 123, you're going to want to enter that as the second code in the form uh, to get credit. The form you'll find once again in the link in the um, materi- with the uh, podcast description. So in addition to getting those hard numbers, which you absolutely have to do, um, there are other ways that you can use experts to enhance as a plaintiff the value of your case. And um, if you're a defendant at trial, uh, the way to highlight your defense. Um, I recommend the use of photographers to photograph injuries, to take really good pictures of defects to use at trial. Can't tell you how many times I come in with these big enlargements where nowadays switching over a little bit more when there are trials or were trials to um, using uh, projectors and big screens of really nice photographs and images and enlargements and exhibits, and then the defense lawyer comes in with these little 8x10 printouts because they don't take the time or ask their carrier for enough money to put in something that looks of substance. So get your photos, take videos, use videographers for day in the life videos for the catastrophically injured. Uh, plaintiffs. Those are videos that follow them through a regular day. Those videos often help settle cases. Once an adjuster sees what this plaintiff has to do just to, you know, go to the bathroom or have a meal or, or get transferred in and out of a bed every day. So you want to use those things. Um, you can work with illustrators to diagram scenes that don't come out well in photographs. They can do medical illustrations. I've given you some samples of medical um, illustrations I've used at trial. They are at uh, page 22 and 23 are some medical illustrations revolving uh, around a stroke, and, uh, Um, cardiology issues involved there in a case, Uh, the auto diagram, the reconstruction diagram. There's a nice picture of that on page 21. You want to have good exhibits for trial. And you can also use those at mediation as well to try and get cases resolved or settled. Um, Use court exhibit specialists. I've done great things with big magnetic boards. In my subway accident case, we got scale models of the subways and put up a big board. And then we were able to move the train based on where it should have stopped if they saw our client in time and put the conductor in places. And you can really make it interesting and engaging. And that will help you at trial. what other types of experts are there? There's so many types. I've had personal trainer experts on case. I've had a bartending expert, a top bartending uh, trainer and instructor in a case where a bartender was shown off and shaken up a cocktail with one hand instead of two. And it flew out of his hand and hit our client in the head and gave her a brain injury, for real. Case settled for seven figures because it was a really bad injury. And our bartending expert showed that you are trained to use two hands because that can happen. Uh, plastics specialists. We represented somebody, somebody in a pretty highly publicized uh, stunt case in a, in a well-known movie where a person died, a stunt person. So we hired a top um, stunt uh, person in the industry to be our expert who worked on the diehards and all that to talk about where their departures were in that case. So whatever your case is, there are specialists, there are experts, and you want to find them and use them. How do you find them? I know those are questions. Well, The Academy, if you look at the end of the materials, have a lot of sponsors, some of who have spoken during this seminar. Um, there are companies that help you find experts. Uh, I don't wanna promote one or the other uh, more, but I've used a lot of them. I have some that I highly recommend. You can reach out to me personally anytime. My contact info is above through the websites of my firm or my podcast, you can reach out to me. You can put the Q and A's afterwards, but you can speak to colleagues. I often ask colleagues uh, in medical malpractice cases for medical experts um, so that they've worked with. Colleagues are really good if they have an expert, because they can tell you if they're good, if they're bad, what they charge. But if you need a specialist, you go to the specialist and they can find people specifically to help you with your case. Um, The last few minutes I have, I just want to talk about the fact that there's probably many of you saying, that's great, Uh, Andrew, you know, you spend a lot of money on these experts. I can't spend a lot of money, especially in these COVID times. What do I do? Um, how do How do I still prove my case without you know, going bankrupt on funding them. And look, that's a decision you have to make as a practicing lawyer, when to get the expert. the if, But as far as whether or not it's a big enough case, you have to do it. You have to, um, you know, find the money, speak to your boss, uh, take less if it's your own firm in your own pocket, use your credit line, um, or Team up with a firm that does have the finances to support you. Maybe reach an of counsel relationship so they can. You know, we have younger lawyers or solo practitioners who reach out to us. We bring in the experts. We work out a fee arrangement to make that case really strong. So, it will cost you uh, for experts some more than others. I'm happy to get into some ballpark figures when the time comes, um, by the Q&A or privately. But again, it's money well spent. It will bring returns. It'll make the difference in your cases. Uh, It'll make you a better lawyer. It'll make you a better advocate. Finally, when do you meet your experts? In my last minute left. Meet your experts. Meet them early. Meet them before the depositions. If not in person, then virtually. Get a rapport with your experts. Have phone calls with them. And certainly before trial, meet them in person. See what kind of witness they're going to make. Uh, If it's your client's treating physician, I always go and pay whatever they need to sit down at the doctor's office with the treating physician and spend some time going over what I'm gonna ask at trial, what areas of questions, sizing up that expert, because sometimes I'll feel much worse about my case, maybe it isn't worth as much as I was hoping because my expert's a dud, um, or I may feel great, this expert really was good, Um, is gonna be great in front of a jury. So meet with your experts in advance Um, Make sure your expert finds time for you, you, especially if it's a retained expert, you must insist. Make the time, I'm paying you, let's do it. So good luck with your experts. I've hit the two hour mark, the two o'clock mark, one hour mark, and I will go through the Q&As now for those of you who want to stay on. Please throw them up in the box. I'll try to go through all of them. Please feel free to stay with us through the Q and A part, or reach out to me separately. And um, I really appreciate you all staying with me um, through uh, this program. And uh, for those tuning in on the podcast, thank you so much. Uh, if you enjoyed the podcast, uh, please share it with your friends. If you like what you heard in this lecture uh, on this working with experts seminar, uh, I think you'll enjoy the Mentor ESQ podcast. So check it out; it's free, and you can find it everywhere. Just go to the the website, the Mentor ESQ point. In the Right direction. There are questions about um, someone's asking which experts should be used to establish departure from CDC regulations in a negligence COVID case. So, what you would want to find out is where um, this negligence may or may not have taken place. Was it in the emergency room? Was it in the way the physician? Um, Uh, performed a a treatment or a procedure. And then what you do is find that expert first, either an ER doctor or whatever practice area that physician uh, was in that you think may have committed malpractice. If it's a hospital in general, um, then you want to find a specialist uh, in administration of hospitals that goes through the rules and regulations. Um, You can also Look up the CDC guidelines. And then when you do your deposition, challenge the witness with those CDC guidelines. It's a government record uh, that can be used as evidence at the time of trial. So I refer you uh, to that. Uh, There's another question, Uh, Stuart Goldstein. Hello, Stuart, is asking that uh, my downloads, um, some have a CV um, of my expert and uh, it's not required. While you are not required to attach the curriculum vitae, we call CV or resume of any expert, it is good practice to do so. It is easy, especially if I'm exchanging an economist as my expert, it's very simple. I'm calling this economist as an expert to testify a trial, attached is the report of the economist and with his or her findings and attached as his or her CV, it's easy if you're not attaching the CV, you really have to lay out in the 3101 all the training, education, publications, and background. So while you don't have to, in certain cases, it's worth doing, especially if you're disclosing your expert, it's worth doing. And um, you're also going to use that when you put the expert on the stand to go through uh, certain parts of that person's uh, expertise. So you don't have to. Um, If there's something bad in there, you're worried about coming out, then maybe don't do it. Um, But if you've got a good expert with a good CV, I like to exchange it because it shows you got somebody good uh, in your corner. Um, there's a question from uh, Terry. Hello, Terry, about whether our experts should write reports, and if so, do we exchange them? Great question. In state court, um, I usually, um, well, there is no usual answer. Depending on the case, um, I will or will not have them write a report. Uh, in medical malpractice cases, I never have them write reports. They talk with me, we have notes on the areas of departure. In uh, an evaluation of a case, uh, whether it's an engineer or a product specialist or an accident reconstructionist, I like a report so that it gives me information and education and knowledge uh, of how to prepare. Then I pull from the report, the opinions, the important stuff that I like to put into my pretrial exchange, 3101, but I don't exchange reports generally, because then your witness can get beat up, um, because then the adversary can pick out parts of the report. So you're not required to, um, and you're not uh, obligated to hand over the reports even at the time of trial. So um, I don't hand those over, except in federal court. Federal court is a much more difficult place to be and much more costly uh, if you think it's a case you're going to have experts in and most likely will need them because you have to disclose expert reports, you have to um, give the uh, fee schedule of your experts to your adversary, you have to give a list of their prior deposition testimony and prior trial testimony, and they have to be presented for a deposition. You have to pay for each other's experts. So it gets costly. You have to exchange that. So be careful if you're in federal court uh, and not in state court uh, as far as exchanging reports. Uh, Stuart has a bunch of questions. Um, Stuart, uh, a lot of times you're going to have difficult experts. And how do you deal with that? Um, You may find that you have treating doctors that say, I'm not testifying. A hospital for special surgery treating physicians are notorious for saying they will not testify at trial. Sorry. Uh, you wanna find out early on if your plaintiff if the treating physician will testify. If not, you have to find a highly qualified physician in that practice area to evaluate your client exchange the report and the evaluation, uh, give notice to your adversary, um, and that's how you get around difficult experts. Otherwise, if you have an expert that's been difficult that you've, been, that you've retained, you have to have a heart-to-heart and say, listen, I'm paying you uh, to work for me. Uh, and if you're not, then I'm gonna get somebody else. And you get rid of him or her and you bring somebody new on board. Um, Look, if you start down a road and you're stuck, then that's an unfortunate situation. That's why you wanna vet experts, uh, find out, get references from lawyers who have worked with them before you retain them, find out how they are uh, to deal with. Okay, Um, Matthew's asking me about federal rules, uh, federal rule 26A to c. that it's confusing. Um, Yes, federal rules are often confusing. And where is that question? I just lost it, okay. Treating physicians in federal court, that is a tricky one. So they're not experts, but you are required to disclose in advance who you plan to call as a treating and give a blurb about your anticipated testimony from that witness, uh, that they're going to testify, that they're going to give causation, what it's about. So you have to do that or they will be precluded. So be careful about that, Matthew. Um, and if you're in federal court, you do have to give a heads up and give more information, much more so than in state court, where you really don't have to do that. Um, okay. And um, yeah, especially if uh, your, your witness is gonna be giving opinion testimony and uh, causation testimony, you have to put that in the blurb uh, that you exchange, especially if it's not in the records. Oftentimes, you can get a narrative report. You can exchange a narrative report if it's helpful to you. Um, people are asking, what type of expert do you find in unusual cases? Um, there are companies out there uh, that are sponsors of the academy. Uh, there's a company called the Expert Institute that I work with. Um, there are companies out there that find you experts in everything. You'd be amazed if um, my microphone that I have right here, you know, uh, shocks me uh, and, uh, and I get injured while using it or handling it. I could find an expert engineer that makes these microphones and talks about under what circumstances should they let off an electric charge and why should they be protected? So if you have a dog bite case, someone asks about that. What type of expert? You may want to find someone that is a very well-known dog whisperer uh, and trainer. Um, or a specialist in that specific breed that caused the attack to say that, you know, these dogs are known for acting out and causing damage. Um, so you, you have to think if it's the right case in the right circumstance, but usually you can get a free consult, a quick run by uh, through experts and run uh, your scenario by them to see if it's a case that's worth right. You always want to interview experts. I will always ask An expert, is this the right case for you? Am I on the right track? Can you even say this based on the information we have? Um, Or will you be cut down if we bring you into the courtroom? Okay. Um, Okay. There's a question from Jonathan Clark. Hey, Jonathan, about what do you need to show a traumatic brain injury? Do you need an expert to show causation and then another neurologist to show the actual injury? In um, the case I told you about, the FIRE case, where our client not only suffered burns, but a brain injury, um, I brought in two experts. I brought in a radiologist and a neurologist. And uh, the neurologist could have done it all because this neurologist specialized in treating patients with traumatic brain injuries. And he evaluated my client, and he was able to look at the, um, the CAT scans and the MRIs Uh, and identify a pattern shown in those MRIs that was consistent with uh, hypoxic injuries, or uh, when they inhale uh, too much uh, carbon uh, dioxide, uh, when there's a fire, when there's smoke. um, There are patterns that appear in these MRIs that are consistently shown in the research. And he was able to identify that. So I would suggest you get a neurologist first that deals with treating people with traumatic brain injury. And the neurologist may cover it all for you. If not, you can bring in a radiologist as well. Jeff, hello, you're a surrogates court practitioner um, and you're talking about using a medical expert to speak to whether a will testator is competent. Um, That's a great idea. Look, experts can be used, it's not just personal injury cases, we see that a lot, Uh, but a lot of times in commercial cases, um, in uh, insurance issue cases. um, I have a case where a woman was paralyzed uh, in a gym and uh, the insurance company disclaimed because hers involved a trampoline. Um, and so that's a problem for my case, as well as a problem for the defendant whose gym it was, because uh, there was a seven figure coverage that they disclaimed. The carrier brought a declaratory judgment action separately against the defendant, the gym, to say that they don't have an obligation to defend. So the gym hired a coverage lawyer who had to bring in a an expert in fitness industry and testify and, uh, to try and fight that back. So you're going to need experts in all types of cases. And it's great to see that they can effectively be used in surrogates court. So thank you for sharing that with me. Um, Deborah Riser. hello, Deborah, uh, talking about a bus driving expert. Um, so they can't give an opinion. You're saying, you know, how can you use them? Because they can't give an opinion about negligence. Depending on how the case works, you can use them to talk about proper bus driving Um, standard practice. It's different driving a bus than it is driving a car. And lay people drive cars, but we don't drive buses. Uh, I'd be real surprised if any of the, you know, 800 people on this webinar uh, have ever driven a a commercial bus before. So there's different things you have to consider as far as where to look when you turn, when you start braking, um, speeds, all of that. So it's appropriate to bring them in to talk about the proper way to operate It'll be up to the jury to determine whether the ultimate fact is whether or not the bus driver uh, operated the bus properly and complied with the standard of care. So someone's asking me how you finance um, experts. I touched on it briefly. Um, If you have enough money in the firm or you have it, you just use it and you finance it. Don't take it from your escrow account. That is a big unethical job. You can't do that. You go to get disbarred. You take it from your operating account if you have it. You need a credit line. I've talked about this in a lot of my tips that uh, some of you have seen online. Um, Every practice needs a credit line. I don't care if you're rolling in the dough, you're the biggest, fanciest, most successful firm out there, or you're a solo practitioner. You need to have a relationship with a bank. You need to have a business line of credit, specifically telling them it's so that you can continue to push your cases and fund your cases because in this field, everybody has downtimes. You could have a great case that's worth a million dollar fee to you, but it may not settle for two years. And you don't wanna hold back now on getting that case done because you can't afford to get the right experts to push that case along. So you need to borrow from your credit line. That's what it is there for. So I recommend everybody have a credit line so that if you don't have the funds in your account, Uh, to afford the right experts, you use the credit line. There are services that are out there, funding services. I leave it to you as to whether you think that is a smart choice. Um, I do not use those services. I'd much rather use a credit line if I'm unable to fund it out of our operating account. Um, But that's what you have to do. Again, or you team up with a firm that you have a relationship or feel free to reach out to me. Um, If it is a big case, we are happy to get involved uh, with practitioners that don't feel comfortable spending money. Um, But sometimes you know you have to spend six figures on a case. It's not uncommon that we will spend 20, 30, 50, 100 plus thousand dollars. We've spent as much as $300,000 on cases um, in order to get them in the posture to settle them. So if it's the right case, you have to make that a part of paying your bills, just like you're paying your staff or you're paying your cable bill or you're paying um, your computer IT personnel, okay? um for a garden variety slip and fall case wet floor case i'm being asked would we retain a liability expert where the damages are significant absolutely i'm going to give you a, an example of that we have a case that um a woman was going in suffolk county to a uh, um to a um type of hall was it it was like a union you know i forget the name of it but it was a veterans type i think it was a veterans hall and she was carrying some planters in, she's a volunteer, and she tripped on a ramp going into the hall. And she smashed her face and she fractured her jaw and it was a bad injury. And uh, we knew the case would be bifurcated and in Suffolk. And we were very concerned that, um, that we would lose on liability, that she wasn't watching where she was going. It's a trip and fall and uh, that we'd get a defense verdict. We said, how are we going to prove this case? So we got an expert, an engineering expert with knowledge about trip and fall defects and ramps and codes and human factors and where people look when they're walking. And um, it was a no pay case. Uh, We went to Suffolk court and we got a hundred percent liability verdict. And now um, we're about to go into the damages trial and then COVID hit and we're hopeful to get back soon. But um, if we didn't have the expert on that case, you know, we wouldn't get hundred percent liability. So you have to get, especially, you know, there's no such thing as a simple, you know, trip and fall or slip and fall case. You need experts to talk about the defect, to talk about the, the slip coefficient on the floor, whether it was highly waxed or too wet or whatever it is, get those experts, get them involved. Um, all right, someone is uh, asking a question, uh, Mr. Buchanan, uh, and it's saying that your attorney said you had no case of sexual abuse because um, websites make it stronger. They said it's difficult to win. We don't feel we can win. I'm sorry, I don't really know how that plays in with an expert. There are experts that talk about psychological trauma that people go through, but I don't handle those cases. So I can't point you uh, in the right direction there. Um, What do you do? There's a question from Matthew. If you can't get the list of prior testimony, um, you send a letter as in any dispute in federal court. The way you handle it is you have to uh, try in good faith to resolve the issue, which means you send a letter or an email. So you have documentation saying to your adversary, you haven't given me this which we are required to pursuant to federal rule, such and such. I'm hereby requesting you provide it to me. If you fail to provide it to me, um, we will seek court intervention. Please consider this my good faith uh, attempt at resolving this discovery dispute. Then they say, we're not giving it to you. Then you send a letter and you e-file it uh, with the court, the magistrate overseeing discovery, saying you have a dispute. They're not providing you with this. Uh, you attempted to resolve it in good faith and we're unable to resolve it. Um, then the federal judge will set up a conference at your request, and um, your adversary will get in trouble and be told to hand it over. So that's how you handle that. Um, uh, someone's asking me, why did I not mention the value of learning the medicine by reading text, journal articles before meeting the expert, so you can talk his or her language? Um, that using an in-house resource like a nurse should give you enough information to spot the issues and to bone up Um, and knowing about the medical records before you have a detailed discussion um, with your experts. That's a great point. That's a great point. It should go without saying, and I guess it didn't go, so I will say it, that you want to do as much homework and be as much a student as you can uh, before retaining experts. You want to research research. There are services, I know one is a sponsor of the Academy, MedQuest, and they have a service called Record Reform, that you could submit the medicals and ask them some questions. Um, They'll provide you with opinions. They'll provide you with links to literature. There's a lot of companies that will do literature searches if you don't know how to research it. But I've found even just doing Google searches on conditions, on diagnoses, on causes, um, you can really, really educate yourself. And absolutely, you want to read those records first. You need to have a baseline understanding of what the case is about so that you can learn and help determine which experts you need. So at the very least, you can get one expert on board who may suggest other experts medically in the field. So thank you for pointing that out. There's great resources online. You always want to educate yourself. You certainly don't leave it to the expert and you want to be able to challenge the expert. You know, just because you say it does that mean it's the standard of care. Have you published? Can you point me to any journal articles? I will often do the research first, find the author of those articles that I think are helpful, and then reach out and try and retain that individual to be my expert on the case. And I recommend doing it that way. So thank you for pointing that out. Do I have any case law is the question that uh, extra reports are not required to be exchanged in state court in New York. Um, Not off the top of my head. I don't. I'm sure if you can look it up. There's probably tons of disputes about that and you could probably file the cases. I'm pretty sure I'm not a CPLR expert. I've only been practicing for 25 years. So I've seen a lot and handled a lot. Um, And I've never been called to the mat on the requirement to exchange a report. I've tried to get reports and been yelled at by judges saying there is no requirement. Um, So I can't point you in the direction of a case uh, in that regard. Let's see if someone I haven't spoken to. Um, the best referral companies, again, um, you know, I personally, I work a lot with um, the Expert Institute. I have worked with Robson Forensic in the past. Uh, I, you know, I find that a lot of time that um, most of the companies are really good. They charge different fees. They have different fee structures but what I would stress to you is try out different companies. Before spending anything, ask them uh, for an expert uh, to give you a free consult. 15 minute phone call or Zoom call to run the case by. You can ask for references before you pay anything. And it's really important to have a comfort level of that expert, make sure the qualifications are there, make sure you get a CV uh, before you sign anything. If the company will not do that for you, make sure you sign up first, I'd take a pass because there's plenty of of experts out there. Um, You could also just do your own research. Even when I hire expert companies, I'm researching the issues. If it's the bartending case I spoke about, I'll go online. I'll find out um, bartending expert. I'll Google. Um, I bet you did a lot of research on the bartending issues. I did. I did. Do you need uh, to cut me off? No, you're doing great. I just couldn't help myself. I had to jump in. Um, you've got about 300 people still on, and you've got about 10 questions. I've been trying to sort of cross them out for you as you've been going. Okay, thank. I can go. I don't know another like even to 2:30 if you want to. Okay. Um, So there's a, Matthew's asking a follow-up question. Matthew, sounds like you have an interesting federal court case, good luck with it, Um, that your doctor doesn't have a list of prior testimony. Then you send that uh, a letter saying, this is my doctor and uh, my doctor has not previously testified uh, at trial. Um, If your doctor has, you need to make that inquiry. You need to do the best that you can to ask that doctor or his assistant or her assistant or staff member, listen, I need to know this. (laughs) You have to provide this to me. So do the best. Uh, Someone's asking me to comment on expert Stanley Fine. Stanley, my friend. Stanley's been around a really long time in this industry. He knows his stuff quite well. I don't know if Stanley is still practicing um so i would just reach out to him he's not too hard to find to contact um and uh and i've had nothing but great experiences with stanley uh he's a big jet fan and a a great guy so um that is in his wheelhouse handling a lot of engineering uh, and defect cases so i just don't know if he's uh if he's retired yet or if he's still practicing Um. (laughs) um Some nice comments to me in the q and Thank you for those. I appreciate that. Um, in what kind of cases do you use epidemiologists as experts? So my understanding, I don't use epidemiologists a lot, and my understanding what an epidemiologist is, is an expert that studies a lot of data on how things impact classes of people, uh, and I believe that epidemiologists are often used in a larger mass tort class action cases. Um, my good friend Hadley Maderazzo, who many of you know, uh, find her and, and ask her that question. Um, but I don't use them. I've never had to use an epidemiologist before, because then you get into all kinds of issues. One thing we didn't talk about in experts is in federal court, something known as d'albert. And in New York state court, it's known as fry. And it's basically whether your expert is talking smack Or can really back up his or her opinions based on science and peer-reviewed articles and data, or whether just, they just think it's their, they know everything, it's their opinion, uh, because they can't testify if that's the case, and they can be challenged and they can get kicked out. So a lot of times you'll have these epidemiologists and there's big, big uh, pre-trial or pre, yeah, pretrial motion practice to preclude them, to say that they are not appropriate to testify for various reasons. So if you're dealing with epidemiologists, sounds like you've got a very complex case, And um, you're going to want to do your homework and speak to some people that have worked with them and make sure you have an epidemiologist who is very well regarded and that you get a reference for that person. Okay, I'm getting a question from uh, Lyman uh, Kashmari. The question is, do you need to have your own biomechanical expert when the defense is using one? So if you are a plaintiff and the defendant is using one, Um, the question is do you need your own or can you just cross-examine that biomechanical engineer? It's a great question. Um, I always think it's better to have one for the reason I spoke of earlier. Um, As great as you can be in cross-examining an expert and poking holes and trying to preclude that expert, if you can uh, and you are in the position to retain your own expert to rebut that expert, it's so much better when the case comes time to trial. And I always look and I see in my cases, if my adversary has disclosed experts to um, counter my experts, and I'm always really happy when they don't. Let me put it to you that way. So whatever side of the V you're on, whether it's plaintiff for defense, if your adversary has an expert in a certain area, I strongly recommend that you get that expert. Um, it's not malpractice if you don't, uh, but it's good practice, really good practice, and likely to get you a better result and have your adversary take you um, more seriously In that you are prepared to go to trial, which often helps resolve cases before trial. Um, Okay. Um, All right. Um, The deadline for exchanging liability expert disclosures in New York. Um, I will refer you to CPLR 3101-D1, which talks about that. I would also suggest that you look at your trial judge's rules, individual rules, um, because individual rules will supersede the CPLR. Um, So if there are disclosures that are required by your judge uh, that are more stringent than the CPLR, you have to comply with them or your expert will be precluded. Um, Question uh, by Judith Quinones. Hi, Judith. Thank you for your question. Is it it common for extroverts to be precluded? When would you seek doing so? Great question. Uh, There's two ways that an expert will uh, likely be the subject of a preclusion uh, application or motion. One is uh, delay and disclosure. Those usually aren't successful. A trial court or normally uh, let any expert come in, I found even late in the game, uh, let the trial see where it goes and, and let the appellate courts worry about it. That's frankly been my experience, even if that disclosure is uh, at the time the witness is actually called to the stand at the time of trial. The other time is a pretrial motion in to preclude under Daubert or Fry. Um, that is commonly done, especially If it's an expert who's really giving very strong opinions, uh, that would really hurt the case of the um, adversary uh, that the witness is being called to testify against. That adversary will usually want to challenge that expert, make a motion not only to preclude the expert in the expert's entirety, the testimony, but sometimes even limit to say, this expert can't testify about that subject at the very least. So sometimes judges will um, limit an expert's testimony um, so you'll see that happen um, quite frequently. Okay, um, and then the question about the summary judgment motion setting. Um, let me see. Um, pretty much the rules of summary judgment uh, with experts apply to trial, are the same as trial. So if someone makes a summary judgment against you and uses an expert, and you think that that expert could be precluded at the time of trial, then you're going to cross move to deny that motion and you're going to cross move to preclude that expert and you're going to cross move that in the alternative um, stay the motion and grant you the opportunity to have a hearing on Daubert or Fry of that expert before the summary judgment decision is rendered. Um, so it gets a little tricky um, but generally as we all hopefully know that It's not admissible for summary judgment motion if it's not admissible at the time of trial, whether that be hearsay, uh, documents, or expert witness testimony. Um, I'm going to answer one more question, because we are at 2.30. Someone's asking if I have a good expert to review brain scan to defend against a questionable TBI claim. Yes, I do have a good expert. Um, you can email me directly at asmiley at smileylaw.com and I'll be happy to share that expert information with you. So um, I thank you to the several hundred people that stayed on for the Q&A. Um, hopefully you could tell I really enjoy doing this. Uh, I enjoy talking about the practical way to handle trials and cases and law. If you stayed with me this far, please check out my um podcast, I think you'll really enjoy it. You'll hear from a lot of fascinating lawyers with really interesting backgrounds. I have trial skills on opening statements, cross-examination, CLEs on the fitness industry, uh, and others. So you can actually get credit for it. And of course, season two, episode two, Michelle Stern, Tells what it's all about. Not that and, I want to be the most popular She wants to podcast, be the, the, get the biggest on down, the of downloads on the podcast. So do it for her if you're friends. I really want to be the most popular podcast on the Mentor ESQ. There's personal pride involved, people. Just go and download it. What could be more fun than listening to Andrew and I, you know? We have a good time. It's uncensored. That- Raw and unedited and uncensored. So you'll learn a lot. There's some good stuff in there, people. You're missing out. Check it out. Thank you so much for joining me on this very special episode of the Mentor ESQ on how to build your case by working with experts. I hope you enjoyed it. And I would ask that you please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. Uh, Give us a like. Uh, on the platform that you're listening to. Give us a good rating. Uh, That's always appreciated. Feel free to reach out to me anytime. I'm always happy to talk with you about your case uh, or about your practice in the area of law and your journey to greatness. Uh, Thank you for joining me on this episode of The Mentor ESQ. I am Andrew Smiley.